It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. I'm thrilled that you're tuning in today. We are continuing in a study that we began last week on spiritual warfare. Now, I don't want you to be discouraged. If you missed last week, you can go and tune in at your leisure at calvaryfountain.com. There you can download it, share it with your friends and family alike. The message was titled, Preparing for Battle. So today we're going to pick up part two of that, and I know this will be just as relevant to you, so don't worry if you missed last week. We're going to continue in that vein of thought and helping us to understand what spiritual warfare is. Not just what it is, where, but where it began and, and how it impacts us today. Because if we don't know what is going on around us, then we can't properly prepare for it, nor take the armor of God as serious as we should. And as Christians, we far too often are, are really uh, complacent, a little apathetic about these things going on around us and almost treat this as a fictional work rather than the Word of God who implores us to take a stand for righteousness in a culture of immorality, to arise in the morning with a battle plan, to put your knees to the floor, imploring God for direction and wisdom and strength, armoring up, getting ready for battle, covering your family, your workplace, and whatever your sphere of influence is, that you go into that place as a representative of Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, you are an ambassador in hostile territory, and it's time to take that serious. So we're going to go through a lot of that. What Scripture has to share with us is immense. And in fact, there are more than 300 citations in Scripture of spiritual battle taking place. And so we're going to give just a general highlight throughout this study, then take it to a personal level of areas that the enemy exploits in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, and so forth, and how to strengthen those areas so that we don't leave chinks in our armor for the enemy to exploit in us. And so to help me through this very lengthy study over these next few weeks, Dr. Steve Ford is back in the studio with me. Dr. Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. Always great to be back. Just as you were speaking, all I could think in my mind was, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord, come. (laughs) Until that time, though, we need to make sure that we're fighting the good fight. And as you had mentioned last episode, the Bible is really our handbook of spiritual warfare. So I, I think it's good that we flesh that out a little bit and what our tools are, what our weapons are today. And you made a great uh, comment the last episode as well, that if we believe that Satan exists, we need to act like it. We need to live like it. Mm. We need to be prepared for the the battle. If we don't find it, it's going to find us one way or the other. So we need to be prepared. That's it. We can't be an ostrich here. We can't put our 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 head in the sand and just pretend like it's just going to go away. It's going to come right to our front door. And it's close. It's personal. The Lord told the disciples that as he was teaching them how to prepare for this. It's not something of, a, of an enemy at a distance. It's an enemy yeah. that's right in your space. That's it's right. going to come in amongst your family members. Amen. Uh, there'll be division there amongst family members because the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, this is going to cause a, a, a battle to to, right. uh, to unfold thereafter, right? When you take and make an allegiance to Jesus Christ, our Lord, everything in your life changes. And now we have to just picture as if some sort of bullseye was just painted on our back where the enemy is not going to take that sitting down, especially if you are making a difference for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you're somehow bold for him, 
you're speaking boldly about him, sharing your faith, you are now coming against the work of the enemy, and he is going to come against you. It says that he's a roaring lion seeking to devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. And we read those words and we think it's against somebody else, right? right? That's a missionary down somewhere in the southern part of the equator, uh, but not in my home. And then it happens and we seem shocked by it. Yeah, these fiery trials. All of a sudden right. we're shocked even though we're told not to be. Yeah, those fiery arrows that just keep <laughs> flying and, and we're just thinking, well, that's got to be aimed at somebody else. Right, Definitely exactly. not at me. Yeah. Uh, and then we have things happen that just can't be coincidental. In fact, after we began this study last week, it's been just a number of trial and tribulation that came out of that. In fact, our we went through, it's, it's a first world problem, mind you, but as our church, right after we broadcast that teaching on spiritual warfare, ironically, and I don't think coincidentally, uh, Facebook closed us down. They took all the sermons offline, 350 plus sermons, and prohibited us from being able to broadcast live through Facebook again. Then as we tried to reach out to them to resolve the problem, they would not resolve the problem. We had to go through a third-party provider. We're able to finally get it resolved five, six days later. And I'm grateful that we got that resolved. I think it was just, again, the irony in it that we were teaching about spiritual warfare, and immediately that broadcast was taken offline. And so, you know, whether it was deliberate or not, we have to see that there is a greater work going on around us. The enemy's very intentional with his message to our children, to our families. He is sleepless in his endeavor to come against God. So let's Dr. Ford, let's just take this back to the beginning. We we, uh, used a particular verse to really set up the conversation. And that key verse for this study is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Let me read that to you. Here's what it says. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience— which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow, that's a harsh text. Here, Timothy has been uh, assigned, if you will, to the duty station that we call a church of Ephesus, and Timothy is to shore up the operation there. The church has gotten messy, uh, immorality is running amok, godlessness, and, and all sorts of blaspheming works being done, and he cites Hymenius and Alexander there, to whom he doesn't call them unbelievers. He says they are believers, but they need to be sifted by the enemy. Uh, The enemy is going to come against them physically. God will allow those permissible wounds to get them back on track because they become undisciplined soldiers for Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds harsh, but that's how much the Lord loves us. He'd rather our body come under affliction than our souls go into hellfire, right? That's how serious this is. Now, Paul calls Timothy to wage the good warfare, to fight the noble fight. So wage is a verb. It's a Greek verb. It means stratuo, which is a source of the word where we get strategy, stratuo. And it's to fight as a good soldier, Uh, tactics, precision used. There's a plan, like we see in Matthew, where he talks about what we needing to be wise as serpents when we engage with the enemy. And, And therefore, he says, we're to fight a good warfare. And that's kalos. It means noble or excellent. And stratia, a campaign. So we're to wage a good warfare that it really implies a long-term campaign, not a short skirmish, not a little battle. And I know that's what we'd really rather do. We want to just go about our daily lives and 
And hopefully we just have maybe one confrontation with the enemy in that lifetime and never have this long-term battle that we have to deal with. Yeah, how can we expect at the end of our lives for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant, <laughs> we haven't really faced any adversity or really done anything. That's right. And even as you were talking, I recalled you know, Jesus talking about praying for Peter, that Satan wanted to sift Peter as well. We have a very active foe that we need to be prepared for and a foe that, as you mentioned, knows our weak spots. Yeah, And that can be us, it. and that can also be our loved ones as well. That's another way to, to access us, to distract us, to discourage us, is by attacking our, our loved ones. Yeah, that's right. I remember there was an image that uh, Francis Chan had posted once. It was a, a, an excerpt of one of his teachings, and I really love that particular imagery that he painted there, because he, he talks about, you know, when the Olympics occur, we know the Winter Olympics are about to take place, and when the Summer Olympics come around, you see those who are on the, the pole vaults and all sorts of, even the gymnasts and all the different things that they do. And, and he was given the imagery of an Olympian going up to, to get on the, the, the bar and to walk across this bar. And, and as the, the Olympian gets up there, we're expecting to see some sort of a Olympic feat where they do the, the most impossible of physical feats that many of us would just are in awe of. Like, right. I could never imagine doing that. I can barely get off to my feet in the morning from right. the bed, right? <laughs> I mean, every muscle aches already. So right. to watch this is incredible. And so we're expecting to see that. But rather what happens, the Olympian just crawls across the bar and then scoots <laughs> over and jumps on the ground and throws their arms up in the air as if, yeah. look what Woo-hoo! I have just accomplished, <laughs> waiting for an applause. Right. And the Olympian did nothing, right? right? And yeah. the expectation was never met. Right. And so it's like, how often we look like that as Christians exactly. before Is God. That that, be our walk? <laughs> yeah, we just kind of want to uh, go to sleep and die and wake right. up in heaven and never ever having experienced any adversity right. or confrontation with the enemy or those who are working unto darkness. And, and so we're waging a long-term campaign, and that long-term campaign is different for all of us, but until we graduate from this flesh, until the Lord takes us home from this body, whether by rapture or by us graduating, that's what I call it, it's death, but we're, we're dying from this flesh and graduating into a new body, until that happens, there's a mission to be done. There's work to be done. So let's go back to the beginning with the time that we have with you today. Let's, let's just go right back to where did this all begin because at the beginning, when God created all things, when not only did he create the things in heaven, but he creates all that is before us in the created universe, even that which we have yet to discover, he creates all this complexity, breathes out existence beyond what we could ever fully imagine. I mean, we can give them titles. We can talk about black holes and supernovas and all these things that he's created, but we really don't fully understand it. We're still learning all the time, and he creates all of us. He calls it good. It's perfect. It's beautiful. All of his creation, he, he walks the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. So what happened? There's no fighting. There's no rebellion. It's perfect peace, perfect harmony. So to understand what happened, we need to understand where it all began, right? Let's go back to the origin of this. And there's an interesting series of prophecies, and we always go back to biblical prophecy. There's 18 books of prophecy, and they teach us a lot about things past, things present, and yes, even things to come. And there's a prophecy against the city. It was part of the nation of Tyre, the city that was within this uh, this large, growing country that we call today Lebanon. And you can't imagine when we think about Lebanon today, it was not the glory it was then. Tyre was really the center of the known world. It was along all of the highways intersected through Tyre, and it was the trade routes of all the nations of the known earth at that time. 
and every pleasure you could imagine, every gratification of the flesh and gratuitous and all the things that it, it, it you know, really provided for godless men. It was kind of like Las Vegas of right. that time, right? Yep. And and there's a prophecy against it where God is bringing condemnation against this wicked city in Ezekiel chapter 26. However, when you move through that into Ezekiel 28, there's now a prophecy against the king and what we see revealed to us there is that he's a pawn. There's a greater power behind him, and the Lord always goes to the root of the problem. Not only is the king wicked, but there's a power source behind him, a lot like what we see with the dragon who empowers the Antichrist, who will give all of his power to the Antichrist. That happened time and time again through world history, and one such place was Tyre. And so in this particular prophecy, We'll now hear this word spoken against the king, but it goes beyond the king to Satan himself. Dr. Ford, would you please just read for us a little bit from Ezekiel chapter 28? Yeah, now this is great. It begins, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. Yeah, pause there for just a moment. I, there's something fascinating here. We see that you were in Eden. Clearly, yeah, this is not right. the king himself. This is Satan, and he's speaking to this power, this this fallen cherub, and we'll cover more about that role in a, in a moment. Uh, but here he says he was in Eden. So clearly he fell after creation. So before he tempted Adam and Eve, he was already in the garden. And we'll see later that cherubs in, in Genesis, as we go through that narrative, you see that it was cherubs who were assigned even to guard right. the garden. Not mm-hmm. angels, right. cherubs were. And that's indicative of the fact that the role of the cherub was as a caretaker in the temple of God. For God, like priests unto God. They're very unique in their design and in their service. And it speaks here of his timbrels and pipes. Many theologians, scholars alike, will suggest it to you that that is because he was gifted with music. He knows worship. And as a cherub, he understood how to make music to worship God with that gift. And so we now have an enemy here who understands beauty. It talks about how beautiful he was, perfect in Eden, and the kind of music he could make. And you think about music today. It's a sermon of darkness set to a good beat, right? right? How many of the pop culture songs are just horrific in lyrics, yep. and our kids go about singing them all the time, and it's because it's got a catchy beat that that's resonates right. with them, but they don't even think about the damage that's being done to their psychological aspects of how they engage with other human beings in their relationships, even in their marriages. Satan's very intentional with that, and he understands the power of music. Yep. Reminds me when we were little kids, careful little ears what you hear. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with you. And that can have a, a really big influence on people without you even knowing it, without realizing it. I mean, the things that I used to listen to when I was younger <laughs> um, and not really, like you said, not really paying attention to the lyrics, but I think I was definitely affected by them. Things that I would never listen to today. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now you're actually more sensitive to right. what am I listening yeah, to? It's like, That's wow, awful. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I used to sing that all the time. Right, I, know. I, really I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. And that's that's the nature of our enemy who understands the appeal of 
a superficiality, right? I mean, trying to appeal to what is physically beautiful right. and the outward yeah, appearance right. of things. And here he was made with precious stones and mm-hmm. beautiful. And that just demonstrates to us the imagery there that he reflected the glory of God back to himself. He was very beautiful. Uh, cherubs in the temple, and God gave the dimensions, mind you, in the temple, they stood 15 feet tall. Okay, so you see how the enemy works in this. He always picks the Goliath. Well, God will pick the David, right? Right. In First Corinthians, that about says God. that. Yeah, he yeah. says he picks picks the weak and right. the broken and the foolish, and and so Satan always goes after the the more attractive, taller, yep. you know, more talented, right? And so he he tries to flaunt these things and lure man with these things. He's been doing it since the beginning of time, yep. right? Uh, or at least since the fall there in the garden. Can, can you read further for us and, and maybe go all the way through verse nineteen? Sure. Once again, for this verse, it begins, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst and devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You become a horror and shall be no more forever. Wow. Powerful word there. Again, this is not just a word against the king of Tyre, but the spirit behind him. As the king was a pawn in the hand of Satan, uh, and we see that time and time again, where Satan thinks that he commands and controls all of the kingdoms of the earth. He tried to barter right, that with, with Jesus. Jesus yeah. yeah, it would fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this, as yeah. if it really belongs to him in the first place. Right. But that's his audacity, his arrogance, his yeah. own pride. Yep. And it's his very pride that brought him down. And it's the very pride that he tries to use with man as a temptation, as a lure, right. to get them to fall the for the same temptation. For yep. Yeah, and he's he's pretty predictable from that, and yet we fall for it every time, right? right? I mean, if you'd almost just see fish in a pond, and one fish watches another fish with this shiny lure get just pulled right up out of the water, and they don't think anything of it, and they go over to the shiny lure again as well. And they're just, there's analogy. no learning at right. all. And, and with mankind, we seem to be very easily uh, swayed mm-hmm. and tempted and brought down because if our grandparents battled pride and dad battled pride or mom, and chances are we're going to battle pride too. And we That's don't right. shore up those areas of our life, nor armor against it, nor even consider it right. perhaps in our prayer time. Frequently, yeah. yeah. I mean, the enemy's going to come against us now. Now this particular word is uh, against Lucifer, right? So uh, let me just highlight for a moment there that Lucifer is not a biblical proper name. That was famously stated by John Milton, as a name for Satan in Paradise Lost, which was in 1667. In addition, the King James Version of the Bible, which was around 1611, also inserted the word Lucifer into Isaiah 14:12 because the original translation of that is that Satan was called the Morning Star or Day Star, but now he's fallen from that glory, and Jesus is called the Bright 
morning star. And it means that the ones who reflect the glory of God back to God and none reflect it greater than Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why he's called the bright morning star of Revelation twenty two sixteen. So Satan is, well, That's that means adversary is really what it means. And we've used the word Lucifer to try to supplement to calling him the morning star or day star. But the Bible describes angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, and even the different groups of four living creatures. We've covered those to great detail here on the program. And you see that in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation 4. Cherubs, for example, are mentioned 20 times in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. And they look very similar to the four living creatures, but they are different. Some of the four living creatures have six wings, like the seraphim. Some four living creatures have four wings, like the cherubim. The cherubim have four faces, four wings, arms like a man, and feet like an ox, possibly standing 15 feet in height. Now, when you look at the idols of the Mesopotamian Valley, Egypt and Babylon, even across the Atlantic to the Mayans and Aztecs, you see a lot of similarity to the imagery of what would appear to be a fallen cherub, that he's been worshipped for thousands of years by different civilizations, commands their worship, demands their sacrifice, and somehow they advance from time to time in their knowledge in exchange for that worship. But the cherubs were caretakers in the inner circle of God. They were caretakers like priests in the temple of God, as we see in Revelation chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter 10. And Satan is a rebellious cherub. He's not an angel, though he masquerades as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He wants us to believe that he's like an angel, but he's not. He's a cherub. And he betrayed God. He's cast out of heaven like a bolt of lightning, according to Revelation 12, 7 to 12, and Luke 10, 18. And now the Bible calls him an abomination, according to Revelation 20, verse 2. And there's nothing but murder and deceit in his heart, according to John 8, 44. So you see, he was the very embodiment of the same spirit that betrayed the heart of God as Judas was as he betrayed the heart of Jesus Christ. That same spirit resides in both of them. So we'll have to pick up again on this, Dr. Ford, because what I'd like to do is spend a little time even looking at Isaiah chapter 14 next week, because what we need to examine here is just like Tyre, we see the same calling out of the spirit behind Babylon as he was moving in the governance of that great nation and what he was doing there, and they worshiped these false gods look very similar to cherubs. And as they succumb to this influence of this fallen cherub, you see how they were creating great disturbances across the face of the earth and his growing and amassing power unto himself. And we see in Isaiah where he's called out for that, speaking to Satan, not just the king of Babylon. Well, as you've taught us before, how many times Baal shows up in different personas, you know, throughout history in different cultures. Right. The names change and the spirit remains the same. Right. That's right. So let's look at that. We'll start in in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15 next week. And that will pick up exactly as we examine then the sin that root up in Satan so that we can identify that and how he works and start to understand how the spiritual warfare works, how he moves, because the Bible's very specific about how Satan comes against us, tactics that he uses against us in the church, in our homes, in our places of influence, and certainly in our workplaces. He, he seems to have the same M.O. 
Every year he operates in the same way. We can identify these things and therefore combat him in a spiritual place. And I add that I get concerned when people say, I rebuke you, devil. And we're going to learn a little right. bit about that because right. it's not in your authority, right? right? Even the archangel Michael That's said, exactly the Lord right. rebuke you. It's I in the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the authority above all authorities. And the demons are terrified of Jesus Christ. So we're going to learn some of that even uh, to much more. We're going to learn a lot about this over the next few weeks. So I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. And again, if you maybe you tuned in midway through this broadcast and we piqued your interest, Go and pick it at this up and all the other broadcasts at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Our services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we would love to worship with you. God bless you, my friends. Take care. <music>